As I mentioned a few weeks ago, for years now, what I'm about to teach in the series that we're about to do together has been on my heart literally for a few years. And with last year and everything in our parish, a lot of suffering, and it was a lot of blessings in our, in our parish throughout last year, but there was a lot of suffering condensed into a very, well, six to nine month portion of time. Not that there's not suffering going on now. But it was so intense that something in me said, it's time to do this series on how is it that we present ourselves to God in the midst of times of suffering. Something that's promised in life, quite frankly. There's no way around it. But how do we relate to God? And I want to tell you where this study comes from. Many of you know uh, our family, just like the Connollys, went through Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans uh, too many years ago now. And that situation... I mean, I had suffered many things in life. We all do. I'd suffered the loss of family members that were very close to me. Uh, I'd suffered many trials and tribulations, just like we all do. But that time when Hurricane Katrina devastated my entire city that, that I lived in, I've never experienced anything like that. Because it wasn't just my own suffering. It was the suffering of an entire city at the same time. I mean, if you can imagine New Orleans, 80% of the land property of New Orleans, uh, they call it parishes there, New Orleans Parish, like a county, 80% was destroyed of homes. Now, I was extremely fortunate in that my wife and I and our family, we lived across the Mississippi River in a place called Algiers. Everything that got flooded was in between uh, the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain because the, it was the uh, levees that broke on Lake Pontchartrain that filled the Crescent City like a soup bowl. So everything in the middle got flooded to varying degrees, all the way up to close to all of those borders of the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain. I mean, when I arrived back, literally we were gone, I was gone for a month from New Orleans because there was no electricity. No utilities. And we were up in Tennessee, thank God, with Debbie's family that has a very comfortable house with a completed-in basement, and we were able to be with family. But so many people suffered in hotel rooms with family of five for all of that time. It was an immense suffering. And when I was in Tennessee... We, we'd also lost, by the way, the church building that we were renting... And all of the people in the mission parish that I had at that time, their jobs took them elsewhere to other cities because they didn't know if New Orleans was coming back. So what I lost is not only the church and the ministry, but I actually lost my entire childhood. Any visible recollection and memory of it. Because the place where I lived was just a mile and a half from the breaches from Lake Pontchartrain. So I was gone for a month and I came back. And the first place I went 
was to the 17th Street Canal, where one of the major uh, breaches on the levee, it was astounding to me to see how big the breach was, number one. And I went and stood up on the levee, and I looked down, and literally six blocks of houses were pushed into each other from the force of the water. Okay? The house I grew up in, just a mile and a half away, had eight and a half feet of water in it for two weeks before they could get it all pumped out. The house itself that I grew up in, had it was a brick house, nice strong house from the 1960s. It had shifted on the foundation and the bricks were just falling. It was a total teardown. With nothing but mold hanging like streamers, like party streamers, all on the walls and all through it. We had to wear hazmat suits to clean out my grandmother's house to see what we could find. This was the picture in New Orleans. And for a whole year after that, this city, the city that is a very light-hearted city, very relaxed city, had nothing but stone faces, had fear, had anxiety and anger. All of that was on the face of the people of New Orleans no matter where I walked. It was a totally different place because of all the suffering. Okay, why do I tell you that? Because while we were gone in Tennessee for that month, a couple weeks into it, my mother-in-law discovered that at their big Baptist church that they grew up in, a gentleman named Michael Card was going to be doing a concert there. He is a Christ, not only a Christian musician, but he's a wonderful biblical teacher. Excellent in theology. Has a lot of love for the historic church, although he's not made his way to the historic church. But has a wonderful reverence for it and understanding of it. So, thank God... My mother-in-law got my wife and I tickets to go and enjoy the concert, and I had no idea the God moment that this was presenting for me in my life then, for my ministry to people in New Orleans, but also even to this day. Because Michael Card had just written a book, and it's this. It's a book called A Sacred Sorrow. Reaching out to God in the lost language of lament. A sacred sorrow, a holy sorrow. Reaching out to God in the lost language of lament. God's ministry, as I would get this book, read it, hear His teaching that night, would give me a profound structure not only for my own grieving and my own suffering during this next really dark year in New Orleans but also an ability to help people in their suffering because that next year I was out on the streets helping people find their way both physically to the goods that they needed and also just being there for them spiritually to listen where were you living? in New Orleans remember our house didn't flood oh okay we lived on the outs, out on the other side of the Mississippi River we had a little bit of wind damage but I got I have no complaints on the house but we were able to come back and live and be there so this would give me this framework what I would later find because I hadn't turned my face to the Orthodox Church yet I was on that journey I would later find as I would come into orthodoxy and begin studying the church fathers in their teachings about suffering that Michael Card nailed it. 
he taught the orthodox understanding and framework of the realities of suffering in in this life, but also on how it is that we meet with God, present ourselves to God, and experience God in the midst of the terrible suffering that none of us will escape from time to time in this life. And that by that encounter of our Lord Jesus Christ who is with us and in us and walking right alongside of us in the midst of suffering, how God redeems times of suffering and saves us. And that gave me this framework in the back of my mind. And as I started thinking about all the suffering that we've had in this parish, my friends, it is so incredibly important that every Christian soul understands how to walk with God in the times of great suffering for their salvation, for the revelation of Him in their lives. It's important that we get out of the way the world wants to teach about suffering and experience suffering and enter into Christianity, true Christianity. Where God lives and dwells in the midst of suffering, not creating it, walking us through it. And so what we're going to cover over these next, I don't even know how many weeks, is we're going to begin looking at how God is with us in the midst of His suffering and turns it into redemption. And reveals Himself to us in times of suffering, quite frankly, like He cannot reveal Himself to us at any other time in our lives. And that is to our benefit. So let's establish a couple of realities. We've already kind of talked around it. Number one, in this life, as we live in a post-fallen world, the second coming has not occurred yet. The world is not made new and the new Jerusalem has not come down from heaven yet. So in between the fall and that time... There is not one of us in this room that will escape suffering. Reality number one. Number two. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament and the New Testament, we are told so many times over that suffering falls on both the righteous and the unrighteous alike. And it's not because the righteous are righteous or the unrighteous are unrighteous. It's because Adam and Eve fell. And we inherited in our birth as we came into this world, we inherited the condition of their sin, not the guilt. But we inherited the condition of the fall of man. And in that condition, in humanity, in fallen creation... The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. So all of these teachings that you may hear from time to time outside of orthodoxy, and quite frankly outside of a number of teachings, but when you hear teachings that if you obey Christ, your life will be so perfect, that you will not suffer Only blessings upon blessings upon blessings and never suffering. As long as you follow Christ, I turn your attention back to the apostles. You find me 
those that followed Christ, obeyed Christ, abandoned themselves to the will of Christ more than Peter and Paul and James and all of them. They were beaten. They were scourged. They lost their life for the sake of Christ. They had to endure humanity, both inside those who were newly born by baptism and from those outside of the church. Persecution, sufferings occurred in their life, and yet they were faithful. So let's blow that out of the water. Let's get rid of the idea that because we're Christians, or because we have followed Christ so faithfully, that we will not incur, endure, I should say, the sufferings of a fallen world. Okay? I want us to dismiss that. Now, I know that sounds like bad news to you, but it's not, it's just reality. And the reality is that in the teachings of the church on suffering and how God turns it to salvation, the reality is the church does not teach prosperity gospel. The church teaches the truth, which is healing to the soul. And the truth is this, we will all suffer, but there's another truth you have to always combine with that. Yes, we will all suffer, but because of the goodness of God, the love and the loving kindness of God, even suffering turns to redemption if we walk with Him and know how to present ourselves to Him in times of suffering so that we know how to experience Him so perfectly in those times. Now let me ask you a question. Give me some categories of suffering that we all know we're going to experience one time or another, may have experienced in our lives. Give me some categories of suffering. Loss of a loved one. Loss of a loved one? Yes, indeed. Okay. Say again? Physical. 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 Physical suffering. Loss of property. Loss of property. Taking care of a loved one for two or three years that is going to die, and you have to take care of them. So, enduring the suffering of others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Suffering of ministry. Mental suffering. Suffering of what? Of a ministry. Yeah, suffering of ministry. While ministering. Suffering of faith. Somebody said something else real quick over here. Failing. Failing. Suffering of failure. Failure. Diana said mental suffering. Yes, mental suffering. Thank you. Nihilism, perhaps. Loss of a friendship. Loss of hope. Loss of hope. Financial. Oh, there you go. And how how about with financial anxieties? The color anxiety is suffering, you know that, right? Suffering for the consequences. Say again? Suffering over consequences of our sin. Okay? Psychological. Psychological. That's okay. Get along with that. Abandonment. Abandonment. Alright. Okay. No, no, stop, stop. That's too much. It really should have been first. It should have been first on my list. That's exactly right. No, I mean, we could go on and on. The bottom line is, and I know this, everything you all have mentioned has come from your experiences or the experiences of others that you know. 
But there is no question that in this life, we experience suffering of all these kinds and so many more. Suffering, and if you really bring these down, some of the suffering that occurs to us is simply suffering because we live in a fallen world. That's part of it. Okay? This environment where we exist today, this world, is imperfect in and of itself because it has fallen from the way in which it was created. The reason our hurricane wiped out New Orleans, you see, it's post-fall. You see? Some of that suffering goes with that. Some of the suffering occurs as a result of our own decisions. We create suffering. We create suffering within ourselves. We create suffering within others by our own decisions. And some suffering we endure because of the brokenness of others, the illness of their soul. And here's the reality. If we were left only to humanity and our frailties, the human frailties, the human condition, if we take God out of the picture of suffering, then all of these things that we talk about that are very real that we will suffer, all of them will will do nothing but lend themselves to further brokenness. All losses, loved ones, physical suffering, loss of property, mental uh, suffering, psychological, financial, sin, abandonment, all of these things, if you take God out of the picture, there is no hope. And man will crack. And man will continue to become less of the human person than they were created to be. But it is not so if God is in the suffering. And if those who are suffering constantly know how to turn themselves to God and turn themselves over to God, then suffering becomes redemptive. Then you hear a teaching, for example, from one church father who said this. Listen to this statement. This is a statement that will be so backwards to the the ways of this world. That's why it's the kingdom. One church father taught this. He said, suffering is the fountain of renewal and salvation. Suffering itself... Suffering is the fountain of renewal and salvation. How can, let me ask you a question. How can a statement like that be? How is it that suffering can be the fountain, that which springs forth renewal and salvation for the human soul? How? Because we grow in our suffering. Because we grow in our suffering. How do we grow? Yes. We learn. We learn. Well, we so go ahead, Pat. We turn to God yeah. when we're at our lowest instead right. of at our highest. But anyway, we go to the lowest point and we cry to God. And we remember He's there. He creates a need. Much more so than when the waters are calm. Right. Exactly. I was just thinking, we're going for the reverse of the fall. And when the enemy says, if I choose even for a second to say, I trust you in my heart of suffering. Mm-hmm. I'm undoing something in the in the spiritual realm that defeats the enemy. And I don't mm-hmm. do it well, and I don't do it often enough. But if I could just breathe, thank you for what you're doing to help. It's, it's, it's amazing what... Right. If that's right. all I can breathe. That's exactly right. So... Yeah, absolutely. Karen? Father, I think it's, I think 
it's also like Job. I mean, when you have a when you, when you have a, a false fix on God and suffering, you get a false fix. Okay, you're not really working through that correctly. Or an incomplete one. Or if you're you know if you're thinking that you like you said you know you have been doing all these things to help God sort of you know because we have a big big movement to help God a lot you know. But like Chuck, when he was suffering, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. Yep. Suddenly he says, my eye sees you. He finally saw God in his proper place and yep. himself in his proper place. Yep. It was all See, all you're doing is stealing my thunder here. All you're doing is stealing my thunder. No, you're you're exactly right. This is exactly, and this is, and we and we are going to cover Job as part of this study because she's exactly right. When you look at the life of Job, he went from one place of understanding of God, and only I want you to hear this. Only because of the suffering. I was Job. Yeah, as are we all, exactly at times. Be only because of the suffering could God reveal Himself in such a way. But it really gets back to what Pat had said too, is that only in times... Think about this. In times of suffering, what do we become? We become desperate. We ought to be desperate all of our days. We ought to, be in, we ought to acknowledge and live out our absolute need for God all the days of our life. But we get stupid and we get arrogant when the waters are calm and it's only in times of suffering that we wake up and we realize we're really nothing, he's everything, and there's a great peace that comes from that. Will? Well, it goes on the what you're saying makes us desperate. That is, suffering brings us face to face with our mortality. Brings us face to face with our mortality. Absolutely right. Yeah. I think it brings us back to the prayer that you Because we're in union with God. Okay? Okay. It's, it's hard to pray for suffering now. Well, please don't. <laughs> Especially for your priest. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, absolutely right. Yes, yes. Don't pray for suffering. Pray to remain in union with God. Always. Yeah, ma'am. Well, I personally, everybody can just hear this. I personally was very angry with God when my son died. Sure you were. Because I, I felt I've dedicated my life to you. I've served and I've done all I, all I know to do. And yet you allowed him to And you to took die. him from me. Well, yeah. no, I didn't say you Well, I mean, but you, you, but you, allowed, yeah, him you allowed him to die. Yeah. So, right. Right. So a lot of people, I think, 
feel that way about why why are you allowing this whatever it is that is typically the beginning posture that we have when we go through intense suffering that's very normal to the human condition it's also we need to be aware what we have said it's the human condition could you verbalize it now my, my uncle passed away and his father had died when he was 10 or 11 and he actually said that to the priest on his deathbed that he was very angry at that guy for taking away his father, that he needed his father yep. as he was growing up. And, you know, that was his common... I'm not saying he never was separated from Jesus, but it was very emotional when I heard that recounting of it, how they broke down in tears with the priest because he was actually said that. He never said that his whole life. His yeah. whole life was that type of rebellion. Right. And, and to encourage you from the standpoint of, again, the evolution of how our humanity moves, where suffering starts and where God brings us, Karen mentioned Job. We're going to get into this later. I'm not going to get into this a lot now. But where did Job start? Job was a man of perfect law obedience. He obeyed the Torah to the hilt. He did everything absolutely as God had put in the law. I did this, I did this, I did this, and he lost everything. He was also rich, had many children. And lost everything. So he started in the same place with not understanding. I've told God, don't make me Job. Yeah. (laughs) And and I'm praying we don't get there as well, Pam, I promise. So let me let's let's move to this because I want to create at least I hope to create, with the help of God, in the last 15 minutes that we have, the framework, I think, that is so necessary for us to move through this series with an understanding. There's a framework that we have to have. Because I'm going to refer back to this framework. I don't care whether we're looking at the Psalms, we're looking at Job. It doesn't matter. The framework will always be the same. And I want us to to try to, to get this. And I'm going to try to express this because, it, quite frankly, it's a beautiful wonder. And it helps really show us where we are in this whole relationship with God and, and our salvation. I have some things on the board that I'd like to explain for a moment. The first up here is this. I want you to see everything about creation, including the creation of mankind, and its relationship with God. I want you to see it as a consistent journey. A consistent journey. For example, in the garden, we know what the garden was like. In the garden, there was exact perfection of how God had created things. Everything was in perfect order, we know this. And mankind was in perfect order with God. And what happened in that perfect creation where God created everything to share Himself with mankind? What happened? Intimacy union between God and man. We were told that He walked with them in the garden. There was this perfect fellowship in the order that He had created. So we have the garden setting the stage for what God's heart always is. And I want to say this loud and clear. God's heart has always been union with mankind. God's heart has always been union with you and union with me. Intimacy of relationship. That's how He created all things in the very beginning. But then we had a break. 
man chose out of that intimacy. He chose to go his own way. And he fell to the deceiver. And we know the story of the fall. And we've been talking about the condition of the fall that we are born into because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Departing that blessed fellowship and order and perfection, we have to walk in this. And there is no other reality. And so here we are on this journey, but ultimately the end goal of God is to redeem. The end goal of God is back to this. But we don't stop there. You can see the same journey when you look at just Scripture. When you look at the fact that this is covered from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, the very end when the end comes, and I will read to you from Revelation of intimacy returned. Union restored once and for all in the book of Revelation. But there's this journey in between Genesis, the garden, the fall, all through Revelation. It's the journey of mankind. It's the journey of us all. And I would also put it to you this way. You know that the first five books of Scripture are called what? The Torah. The the Law. The first five books are God's Law. We're given that then, and the people would walk through it. But ultimately, the end game of God, even in the giving of the Torah, was relationship, knowing God. Not just knowing about Him. The Torah was necessary. In fact... One of the things I like that Michael Card, the way that he put this, is he really simplified Torah obedience. Obedience to the law that God had given Moses on behalf of all of his people. He sums it up quite perfectly. Here, here's how it works. Obey what God gave because it is the perfect order of God. That's what the law is. Obey it and you will find blessing as a people. I will be your God, you will be my people. I'm not talking about prosperity gospel blessing. I'm not talking about prosperity of riches, prosperity of material. I'm talking about true prosperity, which is only found in and from union and intimacy with God. Does that make sense? So obey me, and I, this is what I bring you. Disobey me, I discipline. Does that sound like a father to a child? Hopefully. Hopefully. Unfortunately, in this day and age, we're losing that. That's another story for another time. But Torah obedience is simplified by this. But the problem is this. If you look at Holy Scripture all throughout, it's almost as if God is constantly saying, is this all you see me as? I mean, I've given you the law. Yes, I've said obey and I'll bless, disobey and I'll discipline. And then when you obey, I bless. And when when you disobey, I do discipline. I've shown you that, but do you think that's the sum total of me? When he introduces himself to Moses, when he introduces himself to David, when he introduces himself to all those in Holy Scripture, it's as if he's always saying, I start you here because I have to bring you. My heart is to bring you to know me. And if you're constantly in disobedience... You're not going to get there. My heart is to free you. My heart is that you do this so that intimacy can be restored. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 12, listen to what God says. Talking about the law. If you obey me, I will walk among you. 
and I will be your God. Intimacy. He says it in the law. If you obey me, I will walk among you. What is that reminiscent of? The garden. Right? If you obey me, I will be your God. What in the world, my friends, was the incarnation? Jesus' name, Emmanuel. What does it mean? What does Emmanuel mean? God what? God with us. Why did the incarnation happen? Another point in the journey bringing us to all of this. Intimacy. Relationship. God became man so that God would walk among us, dwell among us. And now He sent His Holy Spirit to bring that to the end game. In fact, practically the last words out of Christ's mouth, just after He gave the Great Commission, or the last words out of His mouth, Behold, I'm what? Behold, I am with you, even to the ends of the earth. Do you see that? The desire of God was never just this. But he had to start as a father to a children and bring them around. In fact, I love a story that Michael Card gave. Uh, I don't think it's in the book, but he gave it in a teaching once. He said, my daughter, and this was years ago, he said, at that time, he said, my daughter's 21 years old. She's a ballerina. She's in college. She's graceful. I don't know how she got all this. Okay, But he said, my daughter's 21 and in college. But you know, when my daughter was little, I would always tell her, Actually, her mother and I would always tell her, okay, listen, if you clean your room, you're going to get an M&M. If you don't clean your room, I'm going to swat your bottom. What is that? Torah obedience. But Torah obedience was good. It was to bring man further towards intimacy and relationship. And Michael Card said this. He said, my daughter's 21. If she comes home today and I say to her, and people hear this, if you clean your room, I'm going to give you an M&M. If you don't, I'm going to swat you behind. People would think you're a sick man. <laughs> Something's really, really wrong with this picture, right? Why? I agree with you. You gotta up the ante when they're in college. I'm learning this already. But why? Because a father and mother and children relationship is a journey. It has to start somewhere. And it starts with a framework of simple order and discipline and encouragement and exhortation in this structure. Because now over time, and I see this in my relationship with my own kids, now relationship over 20, 21 years, it's done this. They know my heart. They know their mother's heart. I'm not saying there's perfect obedience in our household, but the way we relate with one another is uniquely different than when they were three years old. And that's the way that it is with God with us. In fact, we see the fulfillment of this intimacy at the end of Revelation in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to these as verses 1 through 4 I'll read to you. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth... For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, 
saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That'll give you a clue. The New Jerusalem is not a building. It's not structures. It's the church. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You can't get any more intimate than that. Bride to husband, God to his people. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be, I'm sorry, God himself will be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the end goal. The beginning was the same as the end. You see? But we're here in this journey, and so here's what I want us to think of. Notice I put a bunch of dots in between garden, fall, restored intimacy and union, Genesis revelation, Torah, God's law, knowing about God compared to relationship, knowing God. And please remember this. What was it that Jesus constantly was nailing the Pharisees for? You people are stuck in childhood. You do the law. How is it that you don't know me? How is it that you haven't grown over all of these years from understanding simple obedience and disobedience to union and relationship with me? Intimacy. That's what he was always after. You you do the things you don't know the God who gave you the things to do. Right? And so that's our end goal. What is all this in between? We're going to call it this. Wilderness. I want you to think about this. Moses was sent to deliver his people out of bondage. 400 years of slavery. And what did Moses tell Pharaoh? He said, "Let this is the voice of God now through Moses. Let my people go so that they can come what? Worship me where? In the wilderness. Free my people. Now the wilderness was not the promised land, was it? It was the journey. It was where they were going. Okay. I have to tell you a story. No, no, go ahead. Um, even as a child, it's easy to understand this sort of thing. Danielle looked at me the other day and said, Mom, I am so upset that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. Now we have to work to get back to it. Yeah. And she wants to see that garden so bad. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, that's, that's exactly right. For the she heart's there. It. And that's, that's exactly right. Now, in the wilderness, I want to put a word up here that's going to be a theme for us. In the wilderness, God's people will lament. Not if, not might. In the wilderness journey, God's people will lament. But let me define lament for you. Lament means to mourn. It means to express deep grief and sorrow. 
But it doesn't just mean to mourn and express deep grief and sorrow. It means to do so to someone. To God, in our case. To learn to lament and express deep grief or sorrow. And in fact, what did Jesus say about mourning in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who what? Mourn. For, and here the promise is incredible, if you really think about it. For they will be comforted. We mourn over our sins. We mourn over our suffering in this life. We mourn over things done to us. We mourn over things that we do to others. But blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who lament. For they will be comforted. What is that? That's what we're going to get to. It's, it's both now and not yet. Now unfulfilled, yet, and it will be fulfilled. But we do experience it throughout the way. Here's the problem that, that this whole series, I, I really pray, gets to the heart of. Without lament, without knowing how to come and express ourselves to God and receive Him in times of suffering, without lament, we are crippled on our journey to intimacy and union. If we don't know how to relate to God in the most incredible times of suffering, we are crippled. We are crippled. And without lament, we're never going to know the meaning of that statement of the early church father that suffering is the fountain of renewal and of salvation. We have got to recapture what Michael Card says is the language, the lost language of lament. Why? We've already said it in here. In fact, I go back to what Pat said. We are the most vulnerable and desperate in times of suffering. And remember this, if we fail to lament towards God, then all that suffering will be in our lives is further brokenness in this shell, in this humanity, in my psyche, in my emotions, in my spiritual being, even upon me physically. If I don't learn how to walk with God in suffering and see Him and let Him bring me to Himself, it's crippling to our coming to intimacy. And that's why somebody said it with Job. In the beginning, Job, he was the man of Torah obedience. But by God allowing Satan to throw him some serious curveballs, all of a sudden, the man who was in blessed obedience, was incur- he thought he was incurring discipline. But I've done all these things. But I've done all these things. And yet this is happening. And yet, and we're going to get to this. I'm going to ruin the end of the story for you, but it's okay. Because I love it too much. At the end of the story, it is Job who says, I had heard of you, God. But now mine eyes have seen you. <clears throat> Through Torah obedience, I only understood from afar. But the way in which you revealed yourself to me, because of the way that I banged against you through all this suffering, 
because of all of that, mine ears had heard of you, but now mine eyes have seen. In other words, I no longer know about the God that I am obedient to. I know the God that I am obedient to. Pray for one another and pray for me. This is such an important thing for us as Christians to understand how to walk with God in suffering in such a way, in such a way that by the end of our suffering, I knew about you, but now I know you. You know, the Psalms, the church fathers teach us that the Psalms teach us to pray, right? You've heard me say that many times. You've heard them say that. Many other priests say that. Do you know the reality? The solid majority of the Psalms, in fact, most of them are not praise. They're Psalms of lament. That ought to tell us something. We need to learn this language again. Hmm? Let's stand.